The following podcast is for parents, maybe not for kids. Welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, March 4th, the You Drive, You Pay edition. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm a writer at Slate and the author of the book, How to Be a Family. I'm the dad of Lyra, who's 15, and Harper, who's 13, and we live in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Jamila Lemieux, a writer, contributor to Slate's Care and Feeding Parenting column, co-host of Slate's Wild and Wise talk show, and mom to Naima, who is just about eight, and we live in Los Angeles, California. I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. I write the homeschool and family travel blog, Dutch Dutch Goose, and I'm the mom to three littles, Henry, who's eight, Oliver, who's six, and Teddy, who's four. And for only eight more weeks, I am calling Navarre, Florida home. It's a big move coming up. I cannot wait for you to just start sending the legal weed to everyone on the show yeah. from your new home of Colorado. <laughs> All right. On today's episode, hey, your kid just got their driver's license. Congratulations to everyone. Now, how much should you be charging them for gas and insurance, especially if they're not really making any money on their own? Then we're going to jump right into the middle of a couple's debate about whether or not it's okay to curse around your kids. Finally, on Slate Plus, we are discussing the debate that tore Slate Parenting Facebook apart. Oatmeal cookies. Are they bullshit? Vital analysis on Slate Plus. As always, we're going to have triumphs. We're going to have fails. We're going to have recommendations. Let's start with triumphs and or fails. Jamila, how about you? What do you got for us this week? Uh, I have a triumph. It's a professional and a personal triumph all at once, but it's not directly connected to parenting. I am flopping in that regard uh, this week. I, I don't even want to give you a fail. It's all fail over here. The child has taken over. She's in charge. There's been a mutiny. <laughs> Does she have any parenting triumphs or fails? Uh, she's got lots of them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> next week, she'll probably be in for me uh, as she is the captain now around these parts. Understood. In my little corner of the world, I started a subsect newsletter. I actually started it a couple of weeks ago, um, but I wanted to wait until I'd done enough posts to say, okay, I feel confident that I'm going to keep this up. And I'm not going to just like drop it. Like I've dropped so many projects that I was really excited and enthusiastic about before, you know, considering if I actually had the bandwidth or a plan to execute them. So it's jamilalemieux.substack.com. Uh, my newsletter is called Doing the Most. I'm riffing on race, gender, parenting, sexuality, pop culture, things going on in the news. Um, I'm talking a little bit about my personal life. And one thing that I'm going to be writing about um, regularly is living with anxiety. Dan, actually, I just want to say thank you. I don't think you realize how significant you have been in my career. I guess I don't. Tell me more. <laughs> I know this is I'm speaking your language now. Dan knows things. Dan says this is right. Well, Dan, luckily for me, Dan said I was right. And when Carvel Wallace um, was kind enough to pass along my name in consideration for a replacement at Karen Feeding, Dan gave me a, a writing test and brought me on. Or I did a sample column. And not too long after that, I did a, a test host episode for Mom and Dad Are Fighting a few months later. And it has changed my career. Well, I'm delighted to hear it. I did not give you anything. You fucking came and took it <laughs> because your samples were so good. Um, and I'm really happy that we have you that the platform you have now is not only parenting, but a slate more broadly. And it's been very fun watching you 
uh, expand what you do on Slate from the parenting space to this new show and also expand what Slate does through the way that you consider new topics and new ideas uh, and uh, broaden this publications palette. So we're very happy to have you. Thank you. So everyone go sign up for Jamila's newsletter too. It's really, really nice and really um, just great writing and fun and about all different topics so far. I didn't even know it existed. So I'm going to go sign up right now. (laughs) Thank you. And I suck at personal promotion. Like I sent out an email to like close friends, maybe like, and even that was like me like dying to be like, I hate to ask you to support my work. Do you suck at personal promotion or did you just pull it off right here on this podcast? I I had to work up the courage to do this. Good job. Thank you. It really is a triumph because you talk about the struggle to do this in your newsletter. I agree. It can be hard. I often struggle with how to tell people about Ace of Hates, the world's best family card game. Um, And yet I do. I find a way. And so I'm glad that you were also able to find a way. Good triumph. Elizabeth, what about you? Okay, well, I have a (laughs) fail. I have the kids in Atlanta at my parents' house. Our house is on the market and just trying to figure out how to have one, the house clean with children there and have people in and out of my house in a safe way with the kids. So we are here. And I'm trying to be kind of like outside, you know, with the kids as much as possible. But um, I don't just like when I'm not in my own space, things are a little bit harder. So I kind of hastily planned this trip to the Etowah Indian Mounds, which are just north of the city. We went there. The visit was great, but it took about an hour. I was hoping to be out of the house a little bit longer. So I noticed that there was another state park next door. And I thought, well, perfect. We'll go there. It's called Red Top Mountain Went there, picked up the junior ranger packet. The ranger packet says, like, go on this cool hike. And so with zero research or anything else, I just type in the trailhead, drive there. I kind of take a picture of the trail map, but I figured we'll just head out. It's a loop. It's recommended in here. Okay, well, the loop is like four miles long. Long story short, you're podcasting from Red Top State Park. Yeah, yeah. Like, we're lucky that we're all back. I, I prepared none of the children for a long hike. I brought this, like the little water bottle I have in my purse. So basically I led my children on a four mile hike with zero preparation. We all survived. And honestly, when we got back and we called Jeff from the car, I was like, oh, like, honey, you will not believe what I just did. And the kids were like, we did four miles. Can you believe it? I mean, they the whole two miles on the way back, they, they complained. Because oh, yeah. ab- about two miles in, they were like, okay, we're done. Where's the car? And I was like, oh, let me check the map. And I was like, oh boy, this is a circle. <laughs> and we are we are two miles into the circle. So no matter which way we go, it's bad. Um, but they were like, we did four miles. We're so great. Now, Oliver, who is actually the one I would worry about the most, walked without complaint until we could see the cars, at which point he threw himself onto the ground and was like, I can go no further. <laughs> and I was like, but the car is right there. And he's like, I can't walk at all. I did have the carrier with me, so I'd put Teddy in the carrier. And uh, so I ended up letting Teddy down. He's like, I can finish. And I was like, well, yeah, because you've been carried for like three (laughs) of the four miles. And I had to like carry Oliver to the car for the last hundred feet because he just, you know, broke down at the side of the car. But anyway, read your trail maps. Congratulations on your inspiring death march. I appreciate that Oliver waited like he gauged how long you would have to carry him. It wasn't going to yeah. be like a long time. He was like, but I'm going to need a little bit of this pampering, too. Yeah. yeah. Do, like wife swap. 
It would just be like you and Naima like having the time of your lives and like yeah. <laughs> me probably just giving your boys too many snacks. They would love that. That's all they need to love someone. <laughs> yeah, you'd be a big hit. Yeah. What about you, Dan? I have a fail this week. It's a little bit prosaic, but it's been driving me crazy. So I want to share it with everyone. You know how there's that expression that people say, man, that's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I've always been like, who cares? What's such a big deal about sliced bread? It turns out I can't slice bread. (laughs) I'm incapable of slicing bread. (laughs) Alia has started baking among the many wonderful things she has been baking is she's recently branched out into baking delicious sandwich bread. This just these perfect, beautiful loaves of sandwich bread that look exactly like something you'd get from a fancy bakery. And they're so delicious. And whenever I try to cut them into slices to make sandwiches for my children, it's just a fucking disaster. Like I line it up. And I slice carefully, and I'm, like, looking at all sides of the bread while I slice it, and then I end up with this, like, thing. This The slice the slices are, like, like non-Euclidean hyperbolic polygons. <laughs> They're, like, shapes that should not exist in, in our universe that are, like, in 11 dimensions, and each slice somehow is four inches thick at one place and then also has a hole in it somewhere else. And then my kids are eating sandwiches and there's like mayonnaise squirting out all over the place, but also they can't fit it in their mouths because it's too big. So anyway, could someone please explain bread to me because my family is starving. I can't solve this problem at all. How do you do that? Can they cut the bread? They're even worse than me. Bread? I can't cut bread. Do you have a bread knife? Do you have a specific? We have a specific bread. The knife is not the problem. The knife cuts through bread like a knife through butter, but... Something about the squishing of the bread and my inability to view it in four dimensions. It's just something goes wrong every time. And I just end up with something that does not resemble a slice. But you have to kind of like compress it. Mm -hmm. Like as you're holding the bread, you compress it a little bit. What I want is one of those big machines that they have in the Safeway (laughs) Deli where you just put the bread in it and it goes. And then at the end, it's sliced perfectly. How much could one of those be? What about a razor blade? Or like piano wire? Just like, shoo. Oh, yeah. What about cutting it with like, because you know, the best way to cut cake is with like a piece of dental floss. Yeah. Like it makes perfect lines. Cut it in half. (laughs) For an enormous, just cutting it in half right down the middle. Uh, Often that's essentially what I'm doing. Yeah. Footlongs for everyone. Cut it the other way. Yeah. And you can make Uh, little buns. Well, thank you to both of you and to all the helpful Eloises who are sure to write in with great tips. I appreciate it. And I'm going to try every single one of them and I'll report back. Thank you. All right. Let's talk some business. Slate podcast listeners. We want your help to make us a better slate by answering our survey and only take a few minutes. You can find it at slate.com slash survey and slate. Plus today we will be throwing down over the topic of our contentious times. Oatmeal cookies. Do they suck? Here's a little bit of what you'll hear. If you have slate plus. No, no, say the words you said again. Someday I just feel like... Oatmeal raisin. I just feel like <laughs> chocolate chip. No one on earth has ever said those words, Elizabeth. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, 
bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and bonus segments right here on Mom and Dad Are Fighting. Plus, you're supporting our work, our podcast. You're supporting us directly. It's only $1 for the first month to sign up. Go to slate.com slash Plus. Check out Jamila's new Slate live show, Wild and Wise. She's hosting it with her best friend, William Bryant Miles. And every Wednesday evening, they're talking about race, sex, identity, modern life with wit and wisdom. It's live at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, every Wednesday. If you don't want to wait until next week, you can catch the first few episodes right now by going to Slate's Facebook or YouTube pages or just visit slate.com slash live. If you want to hear about everything that's going on in the Slate Parenting Cinematic Universe, you should sign up for the Slate Parenting Newsletter. It's just an email. It's from me. It's got funny stories about my family, stupid jokes, but also links to everything that Slate publishes about parenting, mom and dad are fighting, ask a teacher, care and feeding, much, much more. Sign up at slate.com slash parenting email. <gasps> and finally, if you want to connect with other parents, join our parenting group on Facebook. It's super active, super moderated. We kick jerks out. Sometimes we throw them out the window. Just search for Slate Parenting on Facebook.com. Okay, back to the show. Let's get into our first listener question of the week. As always, it is being read by none other than La Superbe Chacha Leonard. Dear Mom and Dad, my daughter is about to get her driver's license, and I'm trying to figure out a formula for charging her for gas, insurance, and maintenance costs. She will be using our cars for pleasure, driving to school, and errand running. For context, she earns $20 per week. She is required to watch her little brother for five hours per week and load the dishwasher every night. Currently, the money she earns is purely for fun. Coffee shop purchases, phone upgrades, and other non-essentials. She has her own account, and I do not dictate how she spends that money. If she wants to buy $20 in gummy bears, that's on her. I'm trying to teach her that owning a car comes with responsibility, but I'm not sure what a fair formula would be. Thoughts? So, I think it's, like, really hard to come up with a formula because each family is different, and obviously each kid is different, like, what they're doing with the car— This is a wonderful opportunity to basically teach and model the right way to budget and manage expenses. And the car is a good thing to do this with because you can set up expectations for like, here's what we plan to cover. But there are all these consequences with a car that can end up in costing more. And so it's it's pretty easy to say, like, well, we're going to cover this base car insurance, but, you know, Should you have a moving violation, should you have this, your car insurance will go up and you are responsible for that. Um, Being able to say, like, this is how much gas money we are going to give you based on the uses that we perceive you using the car. So, like, are they using the car to do family things? But anything over that, you know, you need to cover, like, coming up with some of those. Also taking into account, of course, like, that them driving themselves to things is one less thing that you have to do. And one of the ways I thought might be good to approach this is to actually have your child present you with a budget. So say to them, go kind of figure out what this is going to cost and come back to us with what you think would be fair. Jamila, how about you? Do you agree with the premise? And how do you think a family should work this out? So being an adult is literal garbage. Paying for everything sucks. I like when you start with the big picture. Yeah. Let's, let's start this half. 
Okay. Let's, <laughs> let's go wide here. Having to pay for essentially everything or, you know, perhaps if you're married, half of everything that you consume or do or need is often quite stressful. However, lack of exposure to information about budgeting and money in childhood can lead to some really uh, poor money habits in adulthood. So on one hand, I think it's really great that you are teaching your child about um, budgeting and fiscal responsibility. However, I think that if you are in a position to do so, which it seems that you are because your child is not working outside of the home, you're paying them. I would urge you to consider perhaps allowing some of the cost of having this car to be a gift from you to your child, to be something that you're providing them while they are a minor residing in your home, while they are somebody who is running errands on behalf of the family. I think that you can have them perhaps contributing to this pot, but I don't think that they should be required to take on additional work or significant amount of additional work, rather, to pay for the privilege of doing something that a lot of children are just simply allowed to do. You know, you're paying them $20 a week for five hours of work. That is not teaching them, uh, if, if this is a 16-year-old, ostensibly, or somebody that's driving age, you're kind of teaching them a complicated lesson about money because you're not really teaching them the value of the dollar in the current marketplace, right? That's not, you know, dishwashing is one thing. That's a family chore. and and But, it, but if they were working in a restaurant, they would be paid significantly more than that. If they were babysitting someone else's children, they would be paid for that. And so maybe be clear that like they're not being paid for that labor, that they can have their allowance because they checked off their chore boxes, but that that is not, mm -hmm. they're not earning that money. It's just something that, that, it, that you wish to give them. However, they can't have it if they don't fulfill their responsibilities around the house, because otherwise you are not paying them enough for the work that you are having this baby doing. We've talked a lot on this show for many years in conversations between us and then also with Ron Lieber about the value of divorcing allowance from chores. Um, and I think that's something that this family should consider, as Jamila suggested. However, I got to say, it's great, I think, to say, well, you should make some part of the money that it costs to have them driving a car be a gift. But there's no universe in which most of that money can't be a gift from the parents. Certainly not a universe in which this child is only making $20 a week and has no other job. But even if the child has another job, the added cost to a family of putting a teenage driver in that house is insane. Like it is a huge amount of money. Uh, here's just one example. Uh, our neighbors whose son just got his driver's license at age 17. Um, their car insurance previously was $700 every six months. Uh, it is now $1,700 every six months. And that doesn't even count any of the gas, any upkeep, the inevitable accident, any of that stuff. I 
certainly know that they this child with their uh, $3 an hour uh, wage would not be able to pay all the expenses for a car. And for that reason, I feel that what they would be taking from this child is such a drop in the bucket that I would rather you just let them have their little funky ass gummy bears than taking their $20 allowance away. You're going to have to increase the, I would like for you to perhaps increase the allowance if you are going to uh, take gas money or car money out of it because like make the allowance a wage. Yes. You know, you can't make them pay for something if you're not if they don't have any money. So so the right. whole framework of this question is a problem. You're already taking it as a given that the kid is only going to be driving through some beneficence on the part of the parents. And so, yes, it becomes a question of what is the purpose of charging them more money? I'm inclined to feel that there is real value to the family, not only a teaching value, but a fiscal value in in making a kid put a solid investment of time and money into this enormous life change and this thing that is costing your family a ton of cash. My suggestion to this family would be not only should this child pay for who knows, 20% of their car expenses. She's got to get a job to help pay for this stuff. And I know that it is heavy and it is it is great to be able to shield our children from the kind of bullshit of being adults for as long as we can. But this is like a college class that you are paying for this kid to drive a car around. And it's true that in some ways it's going to make your life easier. But it's also true that you are doing this as a way of giving your child something that probably they really want and is going to make their life more pleasurable. And it's not crazy, I don't think, to make them do some work for that thing, work outside the house. I know one family who just basically had a rule. There are three people using the car. So every third time that the car gets filled up with gas, it's on you. And the other two times, it's on the other people. That's one way to handle it. And then you do run into the situation of when the kid inevitably gets into a fender bender, which will happen. It happens to nearly every between 16 and 20 year old I've ever met. How do you pay for that? Because, you know, that's probably a thousand bucks right there. I think in general, like putting like a basically a 20 percent allowance on that as well is probably a pretty good and safe way to go. And that's going to be a big expense for that kid. But it's going to be a pain that that they're definitely going to remember and will also make it a little bit easier on you to be able to afford this thing. Let's not even talk about the new camp family 15 years from now when they have three teenage boys on their insurance. We think about that a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at least they'll be driving somewhere other than yeah. Florida, but still, I mean, I can't even imagine you're basically, you're just going to have to stop eating. Yeah, well. <laughs> I don't even know how you're going to be able to do it. They look alike. They can just share one driver's license and just and share, share insurance. Best. Yes. I still think that having them propose something up front is a good way to have a starting point, but also have them put in the work to figure out what this really looks like. You know, like if, yes, if they like call idea. the insurance yeah. company to find out what it is, like imagine that shock you know even if at the end you say <laughs> we're gonna cover this for you um, mm, because I we're your that. parents and also like if they can't call the insurance company or they can't do these things are they ready for the responsibility of getting ready behind the car. wheel i'm gonna take a kid with me when we have to replace the key of our car and it costs like 150 fucking yeah. bucks 
All right. Uh, thank you for writing in. Listeners, if you want to know if we can help you, email us at slate.com or do what this listener did and post it to the Slate Parenting Facebook group. We would like to know what you decide and how this conversation goes. So please write us back and give us a follow-up. Also, let us know what job your kid got. There's a lot of great jobs out there. All right. On to our second listener question, read as always by the incroyable Shasha Leonard. Dear mom and dad are fighting. My husband and I have been married for 10 years now, and we have two children, ages six and three. Through our parenting years so far, we have fallen into somewhat stereotypical roles. I, mom, am the serious one who plans school decisions and lunchboxes and reminds everyone of the house rules. Dad is the fun one, the one who tackles and tickles and breaks into silly voices when reading stories. I'm mostly okay with this, as we have always had different personalities that balance each other out well. So, it works out. But there is one big exception. My husband uses profanity a lot, and just doesn't seem to care very much about swearing in front of the kids. Don't get me wrong, I'm a potty mouth myself after the kiddos are in bed, but I go to extra lengths to try to prevent my kids from hearing profanity on TV, on the radio, and especially from us. My husband just doesn't care so much about this. I know a lot of this is due to our backgrounds. I don't think I was aware of the F word until like eighth grade, while he was raised in a household where profanity and R-rated movies were pretty regular. I hope I'm not being too prudish for wanting to protect my little ones from profanity in these early years, when they are absorbing everything around them. We have fallen into an awful pattern where, a couple times a week, he will offhandedly swear at home and I'll condescendingly say, we don't say that word, please don't say that in front of the kids, and he'll just be annoyed and pissed with me afterward. It has gotten so bad that recently during a school pickup, he let out a loud what the fuck to a parent swerving in front of him, and it was clearly heard by a bunch of innocent preschoolers and their teacher. How can I help him understand that this is a big deal to me in terms of the environment I'd like to have around my kids without constantly fighting about it? I know we can't protect them from bad words and everything else forever, but I don't think I'm being unreasonable to want both parents to model good and decent behavior at the same time. Help. Fucking exhausted. (laughs) You know, I didn't know that you were a human being until I read your sign off fucking exhausted. I was a little worried. Listen, you want your husband to model good and decent behavior for your children, but I imagine that your husband is a good and decent man, which is why you married him and gave him children, plural. If his profanity was such a mark on his character, his ability to function in the world, to make a living, to be liked by people uh, to avoid the hand of the law, then he wouldn't be the person that he is today, the person you chose to start a family with. I think that you are, you know, quite naturally beholden to the ideals that with which you were raised, which were why you weren't aware of certain language until you were, you know, a, a teenager, that is not the case for a lot of people. And so you wanting your husband to make this complete transformation of his language is akin to, you know, him expecting you to have a completely different approach to uh, language and decorum than what you were raised with and what you've practiced all these years. 
you're going to have to find a happy medium. It is absolutely not ideal for your husband to be cursing in front of other parents, excuse me, uh, and, you know, adults at the school. But if somebody almost hits you with their car and you are a person who uses profanity on a regular basis, that is the likely thing to escape your mouth, right? He did not reprimand your child with, what the fuck, Stephen? Somebody swerved and maybe almost hit his car and a guy who curses said a curse word might be a little bit embarrassing but it's a very forgivable offense and a lot of those children are hearing far worse at home i think there's a very big difference between making sure your children understand what these words mean the context in which they are most often used and the potential consequences to using them inappropriately but i think you're giving a lot of a lot of power to this language that our society does not really, uh, these words are not as loaded as they once were. They're used casually by people of all classes and creeds. Children use them. They, They may be wise enough not to use them in your presence, but, you know, that's not to say that your husband should not respect something a big deal to you. I don't want to wave that away. I just would like for you to perhaps consider that this thing that means a lot to you is a nothing burger. You feeling disrespected or not heard is something else. Um, and I think you should address both of those things at once. Even though I am like a person that doesn't use a lot of swear words, we don't use a lot at the house. But I think the idea that they are protecting their children from knowing or hearing these words is crazy. Uh, and you mentioned that, you know, their friends are going to use them. They're used like in society much more, I think, now than they were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you know, so you're not really protecting them from them. You can have the opportunity to, if your children use them or they're they're being used, to talk about why they're powerful, to talk about when, you know, why they're being used and what situations it's appropriate to use the words. But the idea of, like, fully shielding your children from them, it seems like in, in this particular case is actually bringing more attention to them. Like, if every time dad says these words and then the parent, the mom is like, hey, don't do that in front of the kids. Like, what do the kids want to do? They want to know what that is. Like, what is this thing that is getting so much attention? So I think definitely you need to find a new way to address it with your husband, which is going to be talking about this at another time and addressing with him why you feel disrespected by it, what you hope the behavior is in the house. And maybe it's as simple as him just saying, you know, like, um, apologizing to you for using the words because you find them hurtful in the moment. But I think the kind of dangerous interaction that's happening here with the swearing is less about the swearing and more about the tension it's causing in the house and the way the two of you respond to each other when it happens. Um, there are certainly, like, in the case of him swearing in front of the the school children, right, I feel like if you played that out, the natural thing to do would be for him to apologize for his language, right? Like if someone approached him and said this was inappropriate. So maybe that's the way it needs to be handled in the house. But I just feel like overall, this is bringing more attention to these words as opposed to just saying like, these are words that people, you know, 
choose to use for these reasons and they have power and here's why and then setting whatever your household expectation is and i i also think like in life different people have different expectations but your husband's going to have to deal with his expectations for the kids and any fallout that comes you know from that as a as a result i don't know that you can change his behavior all you can do is change the way that you respond and this bad interaction that's happening every time this happens in the house. But he's not going to deal with the fallout because he's the fun parent. She's the serious parent. I guess I feel like when your child swears in front of someone and there's trouble, you get to just say, it's your turn. You get to go meet with the teacher. You get to go do whatever because this is not, you know, this is not the thing that I'm bringing into the family. I don't know. That's how I'd handle it. <laughs> I cannot believe that I am coming down on the side of the prudish mom instead of her fun swearing husband. But uh, I kind of think that if you have a partner who feels strongly about this, it is not that hard to have the impulse control to turn the swearing off for a couple of years and not be an asshole about it. It's like not that difficult. Even I did it and I swear all the fucking time and I have no impulse control. So wait, you never slip. She says he's slipping up a few times a week, Dan, not day, a few times a week. I I mean, I definitely, until my kids were about six or seven, I just did not swear in front of them. And maybe the one time I did was when someone cut me off and then they're like, wow, that must have been really serious because dad swore. I feel like there are a lot of like big flashing lights in this email that are worth thinking about. And you guys are right that the the issue of the lack of respect represented in his unwillingness to do this totally simple thing is an issue. But I think it's a bigger issue than than it seems to me you guys are necessarily recognizing or acknowledging. I think that this woman feels totally unheard and frustrated with this aspect of the marriage. And it's like a tiny microcosm of this what seems to me bigger issue in the marriage that she says in her letter uh, basically works okay. But like 10 years from now, she is not going to be happy that she spent her kid's entire childhood with him being the fun dad and her being the not fun mom and him having cover because he is the fun dad to just basically say and do whatever he wants. And her feeling like she not only has to police the kids, but him like that's, a terrible relationship and it's reflected in, as you say, Elizabeth, this tense, awful interaction that they're having every time he swears. But I don't think you can just say, well, she needs to find a different way to react to this thing that he just is not going to be able to stop himself from doing. He is totally capable of stopping himself from swearing. And it's not a crazy ask when you have a three and a six year old to be like, it would be great if you just stopped saying fuck for a couple of years in front of the kids. It's not that hard. I don't know that I have a great solution. I think Elizabeth is right that if you do choose to pursue it further, the way to do it is not through a bunch of passive aggressive comments the moment he swears. And then you have to have this fucking standoff every time, which is terrible and does make the kids way more interested in the swears. The way to do it is to have a separate conversation with him about the way that what he does makes you feel and the disrespect that you feel it shows you and try to appeal to that in making this case. Um, but I'm not inclined necessarily to just to say 
that it's totally a nothing burger, even though I now swear all the time in front of my kids. And I do think it's useful to have these conversations with them about context. And I don't really care that much if my kids swear in front of me. And I've just tried to talk to them about how well, like, don't do it at school or in front of Kiki because then she'll murder us. But I do think that if you would like your home to be a place where the adults are not swearing in front of the three-year-old, that's not an unreasonable thing to want. And it is unreasonable to just be somehow unable to accomplish that. There's certainly a lot here, but I don't think that it's as simple as she's being disrespected and unheard. I think that like the fact that they've fallen into these patterns of behavior falls on both of them. I don't always assume that like the fun parent is inherently irresponsible or adverse to rules, right? But like, how have the two of you all kept a household together prior to having children, right? Like, how did you get bills paid and establish where you're going to live? Like, there's some semblance of order between you. And I hope that it's not the case that fun guy just buys Cheetos and Doritos and you pay bills every month. Um, because if that's the case, you've got a bigger issue. But like, what sort of negotiations or, or conversations have you all made about like, being the the fun parent and, and and versus being, you know, do we need to have good cop, bad cop roles at times, right? Are we acknowledging that these are the roles that we kind of naturally fit into? And so I'm you're going to be deliberate about making sure that you too are doing funny voices when you're reading stories, right? That you are also saying we can have two desserts tonight, right? Like that you're not always the person who's so rigid and, and unyielding with rules and order that they can't see you as fun. Um, or at the very least that your version of rules and and regimented safe well-planned fun is actually fun and engaging for them right like are they getting to have that kind of time with you or are they only um dealing with you in the capacity of um the boss right the person who's keeping this this operation together um what sort of role does your husband play that allows your children to see him as a person of authority aside from him simply being their father, right? If it is the case that you are always the person who's issuing the bedtime and you are the person who is saying no, and you that that's something that both of you all have been complicit in doing. It's, it's not just a matter of he lets them have more things than I do. It's that you all have not con- created a system of checks and balances in your parenting. And, and that's a problem that's, you know, deeper than this particular issue. But I, I want to push back against you even a, a little bit more, Dan, because like, while I do think that there is the possibility that what you're describing is entirely accurate, that she, you know, she's asked him to do this. He's just simply refused uh, to try harder. It could also be the case that for somebody who uses a lot of profanity to only slip up and, and swear in front of his kids a few times a week could represent great effort, right? It could be that he has been so, because he's been using, he's been hearing this language since he was a child, right? So the idea of swearing around a kid to him might not be inappropriate. He's learning something different than what he was taught, perhaps about parenting and and being around children. But also, I think why I'm bothered by the moral condemnation, like, again, you didn't say like, 
appropriate for the venue language, right? You talked about good and moral. And so when you're framing it that way, and she used the word condescending, that she is condescending when she corrects him in front of their children, which is something that could make a parent who doesn't feel like they're the voice of authority or a voice of authority in the home feel even more insecure about their role, right? And shrink into this uh, childlike um, thing that perhaps he's doing, but for him, for you to correct him in front of your children, I, I like most parents do not wish to be corrected in front of your children. You know, it happens. I, I think there's a way to do it politely, but in lovingly, which you did not do by your own admission, you're saying that you're doing it condescendingly. Um, and you're describing this behavior that is normal to him and perhaps to his parents as not being moral and good, as opposed to simply saying it's not appropriate for children, it's not appropriate for school and work. And so I think you might be making him feel bad about himself and wanting him to change these behaviors to suit you. I think we are all 100% in agreement that her self-admitted condescending responses in the moment are doing nothing helpful for the situation and that whatever happens down the line, that isn't going to work. Uh, I'm sure that it makes him just want to swear more because it sure would if someone did that to me in front of my kids. I nonetheless have a very difficult time believing that any grown human being cannot exert the necessary effort to stop themselves from swearing in front of kids if that is something that is important to someone they love. I just think it's not that hard. And I don't see, and maybe this guy would write into us and be like, I have a strong philosophical belief based on my upbringing that it is important to swear in front of children and that it builds X, Y, and Z important characteristics. If so, I stand corrected. But I just think he's just being lazy in his language and speech or else he's like deliberately doing something that his wife doesn't like because he's so pissed off that she keeps condescendingly correcting him in front of their kids. Either way, it's like a toxic situation that he can do as much to fix as she can. And, and I, and I don't want to let it slide that. I think that there are real undercurrents of like a big mess in this relationship, in this letter of which this particular thing is just like yeah, like a symptom. I mean, I do like her questions at the end of the letter where she basically says, how do I get him to understand this is a big deal to me? I agree with you that this is less about the swearing. And if we want to talk about the relationship, I absolutely think you guys need to sit down and talk about this, because if it's not about the swearing, it's about you asking him, don't do this in front of the kids because it's a big deal to me. And him saying, I don't care. That's a very different issue, right? Like, however you feel about the swearing, when you're in a relationship, part of that is you saying, I understand that sometimes I am going to do things because they are important to my partner. And perhaps that is the heart of the issue is that you're writing us this letter to say, my partner's not listening to me when I say it's important. I, I think then you need to have a sit down where you say to him, it doesn't really matter why this is important to me. It's very important to me. And I need you to do this because in relationships, we do things for other people just because they are important, even if we don't understand that, right? Is part of the reason he's using this language because it bothers you so much, right? Like mm. that is a, a very popular, 
you know, and when you're fighting in a relationship, using the thing you know bothers them the most. Like, I definitely agree, Dan. Especially if they're, like, being such a pain in the ass about Yes, it. like, it, it definitely yeah. seems to me that what stood out is that the way in which you are talking about swearing and it happening in your house is unhealthy, regardless of our feelings about the swearing. This could be anything, like cleaning out the microwave, right? Like, it it doesn't matter. The point is, the way it's being handled in the relationship is not healthy for the relationship. I think that the only way that, you know, and who am I but a humble baby mama, but I seriously think that the value judgment in her assessment of the cursing is a problem. It, it, it's, it's a, if it, at nothing else, it's a barrier between her getting what she wants. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and feeling heard. And I, I think that they need to work through that. I think each of them needs to talk about what does this mean to you? Because it could be that he finds it just absolutely preposterous that she would care, yeah. you know, and, and, and it also could be that he finds something insulting about her contempt for something that's so natural to him, something that she indulges in outside of the the line of sight for the kids, because essentially she's not, if if you say it's not moral, then you shouldn't be doing it. What you're saying, what what you actually should be saying is that it's not appropriate for work or school. It's not appropriate for children. This is not the way you speak to your parents. This is not the way you speak to your friends at this age. I just, I don't know. I'm part of, I'm the, I'm the pro cursing parent. Like you said, maybe that's what the dad cares about. Now this is what I care about. I want to, there's simply words. And one day we will not have to wear suits to work because they're stupid and uncomfortable. Nobody likes them. You know, it's just like, and people will have neck tattoos in Congress and we can all just be ourselves. But for now we're still beholden to decorum. But no, I, I just want you. I want you to be free. I just want us to be free. Uh, I have one last thing to say about this letter, which is I have this beautiful image of after a long, tense day where they're sniping at each other, the kids go to bed, and finally this mom sits down on the couch and goes, fuck, fuck, asshole, fuck, shit, 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 fuck. Because she finally can exercise her potty mouth now that the kids are in bed. Maybe they should do that together. Maybe they that is the, that, they, that should be their routine. Like pour themselves each a glass of whatever beverage makes them happy and just let it all out together. Curse away. Curse away. All right. Thank you for this question, listener. Uh, that was a fun one. Hopefully this helps. I don't know that we solved your problem, but we definitely gave you a lot to think about. If you've got a conundrum you have been thinking about, send it in. Email us at slate.com or post it in the Slate Parenting Facebook group. All right, let's move on to recommendations. Elizabeth, what do you got for us? I am recommending these um, online music lessons we've been using. It's called Prodigy's Sing Song Play. They have toddlers through, like, even adults could use it because they've got piano lessons and ukuleles, and it's like a monthly subscription, basically, so you can do it for as long as you want, and they're great little videos. Um, They're lovely for my younger ones. They focus a lot on music listening, and they're super fun. Tell the parents what to do, have a lesson, but um, we've really been enjoying them, and I have very limited (laughs) musical ability, so it's been nice. Um, I've got Oliver's really been enjoying the ukulele, and um, Henry's been enjoying the recorder, and although it started out as like a whole bunch of a mess, they can now play a couple songs, and it's very cute, and they just do it on the computer and I don't I don't mind listening along. So it's called Prodigies. Got it. A great app that encourages your child to play the recorder, the worst musical instrument on the face of the earth. Jamila, what are you recommending this week? 
I am recommending uh, Sabai Design. Uh, they are a small Black-owned furniture company that makes sustainable seating. I actually have not purchased uh, from them yet, but Naima's dad and stepmom got an amazing sectional from them recently. And I'm totally biting their style. There's probably like a funny joke about like, I don't know, there's some sort of funny joke that I was supposed to make about like, you know, me buying the couch that the stepmother bought and the stepmother coming behind <laughs> me in other ways. But, you know, we all love each other. But anyway, it, it, it's really, I mean, they've only got uh, three pieces at this point, uh, the essential sectional, the essential ottoman and the essential sofa, but they're made from sustainable materials and uh, they're washable and kid friendly and they come in a bunch of really pretty colors and they're reasonably priced and you can finance their stuff and you can order online and ship nationwide. So it's Sabai, S-A-B-A-I dot design. Really beautiful stuff. And my couch looks like absolute hell. <laughs> so you are willing to invest in a good couch, even with a child at your child's age. I don't think we were ready to be there until our kids. I don't think we're ready. We're there yet until they stop eating pretzels on the couch. I don't think we're willing to invest in a good couch. This is I know I, I hesitated on the, the last one was not a great couch i think it, we, we got it it's, it's worth with it but uh this is supposed to be very easy to clean i guess because it's made of all the sustainable water bottle stuff so you're supposed to be able to wipe things off so i'm i'm hoping to wipe my child's uh just wipe her off you'll have, <laughs> to, keep, you'll have to keep us posted because my movers are bound to break several pieces of my furniture it always seems oh, yeah. like after the move we need to replace a bunch I wish they had a leopard print. Sabai Design, if you're hearing this, I would be happy to be your first influencer and also your first leopard print couch customer. The Jamila Lemieux collection. Yes. <laughs> it's got a I nice like ring it. to it. I like All right. It. So um, for my recommendation, I was very upset this morning to wake up to the news that Dr. Seuss is now canceled and that anyone discovered with a copy of his books will be executed on the spot. It was very sad. But then I learned that actually it's just that the the literal estate of Dr. Seuss has stopped publishing six of his books because they're so racist. So that's fine. But I was nervous when I saw one of the titles uh, of one of the books that they're no longer publishing. If I ran the zoo, because I thought for a minute it was, I ran the circus, which is the best Dr. Seuss book and my favorite read aloud book of all time, but it's not, it's not that one. So I'm recommending if I ran the circus, which is still fine. It's hilarious. It's weird. It's totally inventive. It is incredibly fun to read aloud. It's like, like reading it aloud is like doing a, like a double wheelie loop the loop on the motorcycle. It's like, that's how crazy linguistically it is. Um, I just went through it again to check. It's not racist. Great job, Dr. Seuss. Um, although I will say that uh, you should change the name of the song that the marching band plays from Dixie to like Yankee Doodle or something. Uh, but it's still a great book. I highly recommend it as a read aloud spectacular if I ran the circus by Dr. Seuss. Look at you standing up for marginalized white men everywhere. I know. Finally, <laughs> someone has persecuted the guts to say, Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss wrote a good children's book. Where would he be uh, without you? It's true that there's nothing more different than a small minority-owned business than the estate of Dr. Seuss. That is so I'm happy that we had both perspectives on the show today. All right, that's it for our show. 
One last time, if you want us to weigh in on your quandaries, email us at momanddadatslate.com or post it to the Slate Parenting Facebook group. Just search for Slate Parenting. Uh, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast. It helps us out and you'll never miss an episode. And hey, while you're there, please rate and review us. Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Rosemary Belson. For Jamila Lemieux and Elizabeth Newcamp, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening.